The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Good morning and welcome to episode 26 of the MJ Cast, our first special episode for season two. I'm Q and I'm here with my co-host Jamin and also filmmaker, artist and Michael Jackson collaborator Diana Walzak. Diana first came to the technology and entertainment industry's attention when pioneering computer-generated imagery in the late 80s for Marvel Comics. Following this, Diana began innovating through creating some of the first CGI humans in live-action films. But it was in 1994 that Diana had the opportunity to work as a sculptor for the King of Pop, Michael Jackson, when she created what has now come to be known as the iconic History Statue. This amazing sculpture of Michael features on his seminal 1995 album, History, and depicts him in his opening pose from the Dangerous World Tour. The statue itself has come to represent Michael's glory as the King of Pop, not only in our hearts as fans, but in physical locations around the world where 10-metre versions of the statue from the History era still stand today. In this conversation... We are going to hear all about Diana's life as an artist and filmmaker, her work with Michael Jackson, and her current artistic and philanthropic endeavours. We also discuss the official Diana Walzak product line from which 60% of proceeds are being put aside for a permanent Michael Jackson history statue monument for fans all over the world to visit. Diana, welcome to the MJ cast. We're so glad to have you here as a special guest. Thank you, Jamin and Q. Um, this is it's going to be fun. Absolutely. We've been looking forward to this moment for a very long time. Q and I actually both appreciate the History album so much. It's one of our favorite albums and what an iconic album cover that you were, uh, we, you were a part of. It really is. To me, it was the first Michael Jackson album that I experienced, I guess, the entire era from before till after so that includes the uh the like the 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 promo all up until leading to the album release the whole countdown on my calendar to the pre-order of the album till i could go pick it up and then experiencing the album all the singles and the videos released the tour where i got to go to two of the shows so yeah it's got a very special meaning to me and uh, listeners would know that in um, an earlier episode when we spoke about some of our favourite Michael stuff, my favourite short film of all time of Michael is actually the uh, the history teaser video, which is the big unveiling of the statue. I love it. Oh, wow. That warms my heart to hear that. And I do hear similar stories, usually from non-Americans, though some Americans, <laughs> about how important the history album was to them. Yeah, I think the history album itself did 
way better in international markets than it did in the US, which was interesting for Michael Jackson. But it's when you look at the tour itself, like he toured um, mainly in Europe for that for that tour and a lot of the music videos and the songs themselves have like a a lot of European kind of influence to them and that's certainly something you feel with the album cover and the I I think there's like a lot of Soviet Union sort of inspired imagery that goes on in a lot of the history era um, work which is just fascinating to think about but yeah certainly a lot of success in Europe yes so, um, yeah, thank you again, Diana, for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure. And I thought we'd start off our, our conversation by, by you taking us back to your early life. We'd love to learn about what sort of childhood you had, if, if that's possible. <laughs> well, you know, I have good memories mostly. I mean, I'm a pretty happy person. <laughs> so uh, I, I think it was a safe. Um, you know, I grew up in a family of five. My mom is from Austria, so it was a little different. We we traveled regularly to Europe um, and stayed mostly in Austria, but we also went to Italy and other neighboring countries. My dad studied science, and he traveled as a scientist uh, when I was really young, so he would drop us off <laughs> in Europe, and we'd stay with my mom's mom you know, in Innsbruck. And so I like went to kindergarten there. I spent some pretty long periods in Innsbruck. So I have a perspective that's not entirely American. I, you know, I, I know different ways of eating and just being and, and language and stuff like that. Does that answer that question? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's yeah. great. And you, I just thought I'd ask as well about your last name, because you've got an interesting last name, don't you? Walzak. That's, I, did you say earlier it's got Polish origin? It is Polish. And that's my dad's name. He, his, he's the 12th child in a very large Polish immigrant family that came to Pel- Elwood City, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, so they came o- over as sort of like teenagers or, or something like that and didn't have you know college education and all that stuff. Uh, but there were lots of really smart people in that family. And my dad was the only one who ended up, he was the lucky one to go to college, uh, the only one to go to college of the whole, all 12 siblings. And so he studied science, and then he really acted much like an engineer for the Navy, for building ships, just because he can pretty much do anything. He's so smart. But he also has this incredible passion for printing, and his mentor for that is Gutenberg, you know, who, who first brought the ability to print books you know, to us. So he, you know, Gutenberg is like his, you know, there's a big Gutenberg on his shop wall now, but he's a printer and he also casts type in the way that it was done, you know, as much as 150 years ago. So anyway, there'll be more about him. (laughs) If you ask me more questions (laughs) of how I, you know, got into art or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that. Um, soon I, I do have one more Polish related question I actually it is one of have you have you traveled there much yourself have you been back to Poland or I have never been to Poland it is it is one of my favorite countries in the world to go to there's a beautiful city there called Krakow mm-hmm. um, which is just stunning I just I think it's an incredible incredible place well I'm gonna it's interesting have to hear some- I was there like two months ago so <laughs> <laughs> Maybe another place to put a Michael Jackson statue. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Diana, at what point growing up, I guess, did did you and maybe your family realize that you also had such an artistic side? 
I'm not really sure about that because maybe it was so gradual. Like there wasn't like suddenly a point. <laughs> but um, what I did remember, um, you know, when people in college asked me about my family life, what I remember is, you know how parents like kind of give their kids activities, like, you know, have them sit in front of a TV or video or play games or whatever, go outside. What my mom did for me a lot was she would just give me blank paper and a pencil, you know, just sit me at the table. And I, I somehow I figured out how to draw on my own. I don't think anyone showed me how to do it. And um, if you work at something enough, you can just kind of learn it. You know? <laughs> and then I also worked a lot. As I mentioned, my dad had the print shop. He also had a wood shop and tools for working in leather and metal. Um, he had gigantic paper cutters. So I learned at a very early age how to do stuff with my hands and how to visualize things, you know, as I was doing stuff with my hands. Like I remember once trying to measure something, uh, you know, to make sure that I was going to make a cut with a saw to make sure it was going to be like right in the middle or straight. <laughs> and my dad said, no, you just eyeball it, watch, you know, and he showed me how you can you can control, you know, your, you, you know, your mind and your eyes and your, and the hands that are doing the work. You can control this whole system, you know, without measuring sometimes and oftentimes. And it, it, and it's still to this day, a lot of how I work. I do a lot of graphic uh, imagery and even a lot of precision work. And oftentimes the measuring isn't right isn't the you know an exact middle isn't the right place for something so yeah um i learned at a very early age just you know, visual vocabulary i think has sculpting always been your main art form i've also read online that you've been heavily involved in computer graphics and filming that's a good question uh no sculpture ended up being my major in college but not initially going in i did as I, as I mentioned before, you know, I was drawing and creating things. I, you know, I even made shoes and clothing. My mom taught me to sew when I was seven. I, I just made things all the time when I was a kid. So, but for some reason, my family didn't see, you know, art as like something you go to college to pursue. So, and I was good in school at science and math. So, you know, teachers and parents sort of pushed me along in the direction of engineering because that sounded like I'd be good at it and I would like it and I could get a job when I got out. <laughs> so I went to Boston University for engineering and I did like a lot of it. I liked the math. I liked the science. I wasn't sure about what I wanted to do with it for quite some time. And, and you have to decide after two years. And I still couldn't decide. I, I was push heading maybe towards architectural or civil, which seemed more design-oriented. But then uh, a friend took me to Rhode Island School of Design for a summer program. She literally drove up to my apartment and ran in and said, Diana, grab a bag of stuff. You're coming with me to um, RISD for the summer. I was like, what? <laughs> but I trusted her, so I went. And I took a summer art course. And it was just mind-boggling. I, I never, ever took an art course. And 
I, I just couldn't believe how well I could connect to the process. Um, and while I was there, which was even stranger, I went to Brown University at night to see a, a mathematician who had been doing um, four-dimensional mathematics, but he was using com early computer graphics to describe the four-dimensional mathematics that he was working on, like hypercubes and um, sort of toruses, toroidal, you know, transformations. I saw this stuff, this computer graphics is like white lines on black, you know, but it, it, it was incredible thing for me to see. And uh, then I suddenly thought, this is what I want to do. So I talked to him and I said, I'm at Boston University. He said, oh, they have a great computer graphics program. Just go back there and, you know, move into that, move from engineering into that. And I nearly did that, but then had a very strange sudden revelation that I felt that if I were going to be in computer graphics, that I, wa I wanted my art training, which I had begun to get at RISD, to be much stronger. And then I grabbed the portfolio from RISD and took it to the Boston University Art Department. And they said, you are absolutely in. You know, welcome to the <laughs> art department. Nice. And it was wonderful. Uh, and the, it was a little hard when they said, now you have to decide whether you're going to do painting or sculpture. I don't think all art schools are that way. But the Boston University one, which is a very good one, is known to be traditional. And they want you to, to really specialize and focus. So they, they, they forced me. I, I said, I can't decide. I absolutely cannot decide. And they said, you have to choose. So I, cho I chose sculpture because I felt like it was the one that I didn't, that I didn't somehow understand as well. Like I felt a real ease with color and, and drawing, but I did not know the mysteries of sculpture. So um, I decided to go that way. What sort of artistic inspirations have you drawn on through that early learning process and then throughout your career? Wow. <laughs> there have been so many artistic inspirations throughout my career, which I think started in college. My college professor was one. Um, a lot of people didn't understand her or like her because she was scientific in her thinking in uh, trying to understand how to make figurative sculpture feel alive and so I was deeply inspired by that at the time and, and I still am. Her name was Isabel McElvain but I continued to look at art many many artists Michelangelo was a huge <laughs> inspiration then uh, Mayo and Rodin and those are all sculptors. There are more. Um, Kandinsky. <laughs> I guess the list goes on and on. Yeah, it sounds it's fascinating because it sounds so far like, you know, these it, in your early career, you've got these two sort of angles that you're coming from. You've got the maths and science side of it and then the artistic creative side of it. And you're trying to balance those two things in your work. Yeah, I think this is an ongoing issue for me, and I guess it was from the very beginning, was that I don't have any one thing that I like to do. I like a lot of things. And 
And as time goes by, as the decades, as the centuries, the decades go by, it seems like people, if they want to be successful, have to focus much more on one thing and maybe even one aspect of one thing to try to stand out. And for me, that just doesn't work. I, I, I love multidisciplinary work. I, I find that if I, you know, I work on, uh, I'm working on a painting, I'm working on a sculpture, I'm working on a movie, I'm, I'm working on lifestyle, <laughs> um, handstands and smoothies and desserts. <laughs> oh, I love desserts. Uh, Me too. <laughs> it goes on and on. So, but I feel like they inform each other all the time, you know, so it's never a waste, you know, to go away from something and come back to it. So at what point in your career did you decide definitively, okay, it's going to be art. That's what I'm doing. What was that moment? <laughs> I guess, I don't know if that really happened, but I think that I was pretty sure while I was in the Boston University art program that I was going to be an artist. And of course that would be natural because I was surrounded by artists and, and professors of art and, and I was doing that. So there weren't a lot of other influences. But then I got a job at, um, at the Harvard Medical School. I was assisting medical illustrator and also in a Harvard Medic Medical School graphics department. And they one day got a shipment of computers, which are kind of these strange things that most people didn't know what they were. But I wasn't, I had no problem with it because I, I was in engineering school and we had computers there, even though they were the early kind. <laughs> but I was really excited. There were these Apple computers. They were like, you know, desktop things, like the very, very early ones. Like Macintosh uh, earlier, computers? Uh, or like Apple II? I'm trying Lisa? to remember. Hey, Lisa. Yeah, <laughs> the Lisas. Oh, cool, cool. I'm a huge Apple fan. So. And I and I, I was like, oh, this is cool, you know. And I was opening them up, the boxes, and putting it all together. And, and I was like, I wonder if I can make imagery with this, you know. And and I did. I start. I would. I had ended up staying up late at night because it was really, you know, in this Harvard Medical School graphics department. Um, uh, eventually, they told me that they told my boss that that I couldn't do that because. They didn't know what I was doing there late at night. <laughs> so that made me mad. I ended up leaving that job. But that kind of sparked something, you know, that continued interest in the idea that, you know, you could make imagery with using math, basically. So I ended up, after I graduated, I took a trip to a big computer graphics conference in San Francisco called SIGGRAPH. I think there were like 50,000 people there. I don't know if that's the exact number, but it's a lot. And that's where I met my husband, Jeff Kleiser. And he's been my partner for decades now. I also went to Hawaii to see my cousin who was a doctor there. But I ended up meeting up with Jeff again uh, in New York. And um, we ended up getting together, you know, more formally, you know, maybe a year later. And he was working on his brother Randall Kleiser's movie that was um, Flight of the Navigator is a Disney film. 
It sure is. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Key's like the biggest Disney fan in the whole world, so. <laughs> no, Jeff, I love it. It was so impressive to me. I was like, wow, yeah. this is so cool what they're doing. Jeff was working for digital effects at the time. Well, not working for it. He ran it pretty much. Wow. Uh, That's but it like was, some it was iconic like, stuff from that film. That ship like is burned into oh. like us 80 kids' memory forever. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I, I, I was just so – I'm still to this day – really enamored by that ship (laughs) it's it's stunning yes it is and so i met jeff and he that sort of closed down that digital effects they had seven partners and that wasn't very a good formula i guess um well especially because one of them made it difficult for the rest of them so uh they had to close digital effects and jeff went to work on the paramount lot in hollywood for um omnibus computer graphics and he ended up hiring me because they were doing a Marvel a test for Marvel. Uh, it was a superhero. I can't remember. I'm sorry. It really was a long time ago. The name of the superhero, but he was one of these really omnipotent types. You know, he was super, super, like triple super. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like he could dream the world or something, you know. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to make him computer generated and Jeff's had a great idea, which was to have someone sculpt. And I was fresh out of sculpture school, and he saw my work, and he was really impressed with it. So he's like, hey, you could you know, sculpt this superhero, dude. And, and then here's what we're going to do. We're gonna, we, want, well, we want you to separate <laughs> the body parts, but then kind of build end caps on each body. So if you can imagine, like, the lower leg is one separate physical sculpture and the upper leg is another separate physical sculpture and then at the knee you know if you're going to chop it right through i would i would add some kind of end cap to each of those body parts and then they would they would digitize them using um this is all a new idea that jeff had a, a polemus i think it was used for the military polemus three space digitizer he said we're going to digitize these physical sculptures and they will become virtual sculptures in the computer. And when you do that, you can take the lower leg and the upper leg and you can put at the at the knee, those two end caps can intersect because they're not physical anymore. They're virtual. <laughs> so that was the idea. Back then, you know, you couldn't bend things at all. That simply was not that the you know the software was just not there yet so <laughs> that was the that was the plan and so i was so excited i can't tell you to about doing this so i did it i i put my 100% effort into it and they sculpted a lower leg i mean they i'm sorry they did over at paramount the team from omnibus they digitized what they did was they they took these little architectural tapes and they they put the tapes onto the lower leg uh, and made a grid, and then they tu- they touched a pen that was attached to the Polymus digitizer at each intersection of the grid lines, and from those intersections they could get coordinate points, you know x, y, and z, um, which you know basically gives you information like position information, relative position information of all the points on the surface, so you can recreate that surface. So they were able to you know, pop that lower leg into a 
um, into a lighting software package and put a little like skin on it, you know, so it was like pink. And um, yeah. I guess yeah. he was a white guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of a pink, you know, shiny, you know, plasticky looking. But, you know, but it was a lower leg. And we were taking Polaroids off the screen. And we're going to the next SIGGRAPH, which was 1986. So we all went there. And I had these Polaroids in my pocket of the lower leg <laughs> of this character. And we, you know, we walked around the floor. You know, there's so many people there everywhere. And I said, hey, check out what, you know, what we're doing, making the guy. And here's the lower leg. And they were like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, oh, my God, I can't believe. Like, they were, people were just floored. They thought that was, like, the beginning of something. <laughs> and it was. It sure was. Yeah, being, I've just, I love hearing that I've just been sitting here listening enraptured, being such a, um, I love like those sort of Marvel and, and this whole superhero films that have evolved right from, yeah, back in those early days and hearing about just that, that little seed that sort of was starting it. That's awesome. Yeah. So much has happened since then. But back then, um, uh, you know, we, we all came home and the Marvel Comics project was dropped. You know, I don't know what reason, but for whatever reason, that company wasn't going to do that anymore. And um, so I'm back to, like, sculpting, you know, my friends <laughs> at home. <laughs> and and um, every day Jeff would come home and I'd say, so what's going on with the, you know, digital? Because I did all that work. I wanted to see if it worked, you know? I couldn't stand the idea of not knowing. And um, then one day I said, Jeff, how about if I just come in and finish it off? You know, if nobody else is going to, I mean, and, and, and please, 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 <laughs> can I? And he's like, well, all right. You know, yeah. um, so I went in and, and there are a bunch of nine to fivers in there. So, you know, I, I'm a little bit, I, it seemed odd, you know, that would someone come in and want to like do all this stuff, but I did. And it, it, it just kept going. It was, I, I digitized every body part you know, on the guy. I said, okay, now we need to animate him. <laughs> and these are, people are doing like the Paramount logo, you know, with the stars and all that stuff. They don't have time to like help me, you know, animate this guy. But there was one guy who was paying attention. He was really smart, Larry Weinberg. Um, he's like, okay, what do you want to do? And I said, I just want to, you know, I want to stick these, I want to, I want to animate this guy. What do I have to do? Um, and so he showed me a way to um, like parent all these body parts together um in an animation program and so i just went off on my way and animated him made him like i just tried to do something easy like maybe you could just skate on ice so you know it's kind of smooth <laughs> so i have him skate around in a circle and i had him fall down like he slipped and fell on his butt um and, and we rendered it and it was like rendered he, he was like a guy with skin and he's wearing he, i didn't have any clothes for him but i just put like we put a pair of like white underwear little little pair of bikini white underpants on him um and and he just falls and it's pretty cool you know when we first see that guy moving around but it wasn't like we were gonna you know open champagne bottles it was more like in my mind it was like well he has to talk now <laughs> you know so how do we do that you know so luckily larry is still interested in helping me so he suggests that I make multiple faces that can morph 
you know, like expressions and phonemes of speech. So I would actually go and sculpt certain ones, uh, some number, I don't know, maybe it was like 15 or something like that, a bunch of faces. So I went home and did that and then decided they were too small to digitize. So I ended up doing the whole thing all over again, kind of a life-size face. So I had a whole bunch of life-size faces. This is very time labor intensive, if you can imagine. I can. Uh, we put 2,000 yeah. um, polygons on a face, and in order for them to morph from one to another, like a happy, like a happy face to a screaming face or something, the two, the polygons on each face have to be the same. They have to be exactly the same. You know, same. Even though the face is moved, you have to have the same topology. You have to have the same number of quadrilaterals, same number of triangles. The points need, and all those things have to be encoded into the database in the same order. And and there was no way to do that except by hand. So I tried to digitize two faces by hand in the same exact order, which took two weeks, of course. In the meantime, Larry wrote a program that would take the two faces and reorder them. So if you made any mistakes, it'd be in the same order. And that became the basis for all the to uh, talking and facial expression work that we did in the next few years. Wow. So speaking of those next few years, where did your career end up going Like prior to working with Michael in terms of CGI and digital technologies? I know you worked on a Radio City Music Hall sort of um, computer-generated introduction and those kind of yeah, things as well. Yeah, we did, um, which I just, you know, kind of realized the other day when you know, when I, when we saw that um, Beyonce was, you know, wearing the sort of almost iconic, uh, dangerous outfit. Uh, that was a great right. little tribute. Yeah, it we Somehow it. it all reminded me of, you know, the radius that we had done that opening, you know, wow. Uh, but that was our first, that was actually our first job. That was a, our first paying job. I would say the first production job. We were building databases because Jeff had a Rolodex and I didn't, he was older than me, and he had a Rolodex, people in like post houses all over the world. And so he'd call them up and say, hey, we can make databases for you. You know, we've got a sculptor in-house and, you know, so we can make people stuff. We can make them a hand or a foot or a baseball glove or, you know, anything they need that back in those days you just couldn't make. I mean, everything in computer graphics was pretty much like, cubes and spheres and letters, you know, and numbers. Um, but the organic kind of sculptor, sculptural stuff um, wasn't easily come by at all. Um, so we set up a little business where, you know, we charge some money and um, they tell us what we want. We send them off a database <laughs> so they could, so their commercials and their, and their broadcast videos could be cool, you know? So we had a little thing going, but, we didn't want to build databases forever, you know, too creative. So somebody came along and hired us to do the Radio City thing. I can't remember exactly how that happened, um, but we did do it. And that's one of the first examples of ray tracing in computer animation. But what the, the things that I think put us on the map were the two pieces that we did for SIGGRAPH 1988 and 1989. For 1988, we did. We took that guy that I described, the one that was supposed to be for Marvel, Marvel, and we made him into this guy called Nestor Sextone, and he's getting on a podium and he's doing a short speech for the synthetic 
Actors Guild. <laughs> uh, we thought it was funny because um, we were at a party and we were telling some people we were trying to make synthetic actors and they were like, oh my God, they're, that's horrible. They're going to replace us, you know? And <laughs> we, we thought, that's kind of ludicrous. That's not going to happen. Yeah. So that seemed kind of funny to us. And at the same time, these people that who we knew, friends, Rocky, um, Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jenkel, these innovative commercial directors had been doing Max Headroom and Max Headroom was really popular right around that time and everybody thought he was computer generated. Do, do you guys know what I'm talking about, Max Headroom? I sure do. I remember him. I don't. I'll admit, I don't. Well, <laughs> Jamin, you would probably recognize um, in Back to the Future 2, do you remember in Cafe 80s yeah. and they had the sort of heads, yes. talking heads on the ordering television sets? That those sort of talking heads were sort of based on, I think, the Max Headroom character. And Eminem, Eminem does see. kind of a Max Headroom thing too. Yes, that's right. But anyway, we what Rocky and Annabelle did, which was really clever, was they they tried to create. Max Headroom is not was not computer generated at all. <laughs> he was like a guy that was shot on video, like an actor. And they put like a rubber mask on the on the actor, and um, and then they shot him in a rubber hair too, I think. And they just shot him, and then they processed it. You know, they they took out frames and stuff. It was like jittery and stuff. So it's it's really clever, really funny. Um, but everybody, you know, if we would meet people and say, "Hey, we're you know we're." building this computer-generated guy, and they'd be like, oh, like Max Hedrum? No, you know, like Max Hedrum, not computer-generated. So, we, so we, that's, that gave us the idea for um, Nestor Sexton, which is our character, and he's like, like I said, he's doing speech for the Synthetic Actors Guild, and he's saying, you know, some people have been going around putting on rubber masks, pretending to be synthetic. And this means, you know, fewer jobs for you and me. You know, so it, it was kind of a reversal where the computer-generated guys are, like, worried about being replaced by real guys. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we did that, and it got some attention and because um, it really it just it was the first human-like character in uh, at SIGGRAPH, I think. And then uh, we, we went to Nikograph. We went to SIGGRAPH and NECOGRAPH with our next project, which was a woman, and we ended up doing a music video, three minutes, very experimental, you know, <laughs> like her arms pop off a few times. <laughs> it was a bit too ambitious, maybe. We couldn't even see the footage, the final footage, until it was like put in the cans and the cans were jumping on a plane to get, you know, to the judges. Uh, like that but um but still you know it got attention again and from then on we were able to get pretty big projects from people made pretty big assumptions like we got hired to do 12 minutes of cosmic phenomena for pbs series called the astronomers be just because we could do a three minutes of a computer-generated woman singing and dancing, <laughs> which is not like it, you know, but uh, the, the producer, Michael Van Himbergen, was so impressed by that that he said, if you can do that, you can do anything. <laughs> so, uh, so we ended up, that, that was our first, you know, 
I guess, six-figure job or something, you know, the, 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 the PBS series. It's interesting you spoke earlier about the, um, that Radio City Music Hall intro. I know that a lot of Michael Jackson fans have actually seen that and they might not know they've even seen it because it's, um, it's actually on one of his DVDs oh. that he put out. If you've seen the, yeah, if, you see the, if you've seen the Dangerous Short Films DVD, there's the Super cool. Bowl performance in that and at the very start of that performance they've got yeah it's sorry Diana. World. you know thing like we're always finding new connections yeah that's exactly right and they've got like i i never attributed that to you at all and i just i just watched it and thought oh that's cool james l jones is talking and then michael's coming on and that's lo- that looks really cool how it's zooming into the doors and it's only recently that i realized that you were involved in that yeah it's only recently that i was too but we, we definitely were i just forgot yeah. Uh, we also worked on radio at for a major thing for Radio City Music Hall starting in about 2001. You know, quite a few years later, we did a. This, I don't know. Have you ever been? If you've ever been there, there's a stereoscopic opening. It's about well, now it's maybe three minutes long. The Santa kind of taking a, a flying through New York on a sleigh, and that's all computer generated. It's, it's stereoscopic, 70 millimeter projection. So we, you know, we came back around and like actually, literally worked for Radio City Music Hall. It's funny how life works in these big circles sometimes. It is. It's great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that incredible masterclass and sharing the detail in your of your history. Yes. We we think it's really important to acknowledge people's histories and how they learned something that got them to where we're going to talk about in the in the. Uh, later part of the episode and it's sort of just for us and for the listeners it puts everything into a really proper context and perspective so thanks so much for the detail that you've shared it's awesome so moving on towards that that michael era before working with michael what was your awareness of him and of his music that's kind of interesting uh because um i guess i didn't say everything about my it goes back to the very first question my family like the one thing that we didn't get in our family, it was sort of insulated a little bit. So, you know, did all this cool stuff, lots of drawing and music lessons and all this stuff, but not any pop culture. So I'm still like very weak in that area, honestly. Uh, But so classical music was the music of our house. It was played all the time. And at seven, I started my lessons and my sister probably around the same time when she got to be my age, violin, I learned piano. I played 12, uh, 10, 10 years of lessons in classical piano. And then my brother as well did cello and piano. And he's a composer. My sister, both my siblings are musicians. And I'm happy to go. See, I'm going to go see them in California in exactly one week. Yay. Um, I'm very excited about that. And remind me, there's a little story about my brother and me seeing Michael four years before I, I did the project. But when I was, I'm pretty sure I was eight years old. <laughs> That's going to date me for sure. My, I just remember being on somebody's porch in somebody's house with a bunch of girls and a radio and we were dancing away. <laughs> For me, it was like a new experience. It the song. You can probably guess what the song was, right? Um, 
What what year was this, roughly? Five. Seventy-five. Hmm. So mid seventies. So we're in it's too early for dancing machine. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the exact year was, uh, but the song was ABC. ABC. Oh, classic. <laughs> I mean, it was. It just. I mean, fully sucked me in, and it stuck in my head for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, so that's my first experience. Um, I I would say that I always paid attention and always loved the music, but it wasn't, I wasn't—I wasn't a pop music follower because what happened was I was really stuck on classical for a long time, and then when I went to college in Boston, my second year, I found a couple roommates, and we moved. We found an apartment on Gainsborough Street, which is in the neighborhood of Berkeley College of Music, and. I can't say how it happened, but it happened. We became friends with music students from Berkeley because they they were our neighbors now, even though we were all Boston University students. And many of them were jazz musicians. And this is something I didn't know about either. But I was starting to learn because they were, you know, they were storming into my apartment, you know, and saying, you have to hear this. You know, this is Bud <laughs> Powell. This is Bud Powell. You know, and they would grab a record and throw it on the record player. Um, and I would listen and I'd go, oh, my God, this is like, amazing. You know, I, I didn't really know how they were doing it, you know, but I was just super amazed by it. And I continued to listen to that. And then I would say when, when I ended up with Jeff, more pop music got in. So there was more Madonna and Michael Jackson and, world music and it all kind of became more eclectic but of course had lots to do and you know not a lot of time to to be a fan of anyone <laughs> and then I tried repeatedly to play jazz myself even though I was like so skilled like you know I could play really hard pieces on the piano but when I tried to improvise something I absolutely could not there was like a a solid wall preventing me from you know, improvisation was on the other side, and I could not could not get there. So I started and stopped trying. I tried on my own a lot for years, and um, eventually I said, I, I want to stop trying. I'm going to get someone to help me. So I, I took some lessons much more recently in my life, and and I'm proud to say I have broken that barrier down. Awesome. And, Great. And I got even more obsessed with jazz, and you could say became a fan of Bill Evans, and got to know his life really, really well uh, for what I think he did for music. And, you know, I think he changed the sound of jazz. Mm. Um, now, but that being said, <laughs> I, almost two years ago, for the purpose of being a better jazz pianist, I decided to take drum lessons. Whoa. And... <laughs> And still to this day, I'm not playing jazz drumming. It, it, I'm just learning to play the drums. But what it has done, which is interesting, is it's really making me listen to a lot of music that I hadn't listened to as much before. I'm never the same person. <laughs> so if you speak to me in a couple of years, you know, I, I could be I could be an expert expert on a whole new thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I am now a, a huge fan of Michael, and there, I know there's so much to know. I know what I know from, you know, having worked with him and from what I've gathered 
and I'm gathering more and more. And the more I know, the more I like. So, and I'm so inspired by him. I mean, I just, he's just one of those human beings that comes along. Uh, well, I mean, that's at least the result of it. You know, he's one of those human beings that comes along once in, once in a while. You know, an Einstein, you know, and a, a Leonardo and a Michael Jackson and, you know, Michelangelo and Bill Evans. <laughs> uh, they're very, very, Louis Armstrong, I'm going to throw in him. Um, but they're very rare, and he's one of them. So I'm just super, super inspired by him. You know, I one of my favorite quotes from him, you know, because he himself, you know, would probably say, you know, and like most artists, I think, is that it's really about the work, you know, not like they got some kind of special gift. You know, the special gift is probably the the desire to work or the, you know, the inspiration, the, the motivation, the curiosity, you know, those kind of things are what, you know, makes the genius. Not so much that they just woke up that way, you know. Michael said, you know, I'm, I'm really very self-confident when it comes to my work. When I take on a project, I believe in it 100%. I really put my soul into it. I die for it. That's how I am. And, you know, I, I feel like I can relate to that. I don't feel like I have reached it. Those words, like, are, you know, they're, I don't know, they resonate. They're, they're in my brain all the time. And I, I, I want to work towards that degree of, you know, caring and caring about a project. Wow. Michael Jackson, history, 15 greatest hits and 15 brand new songs, including the number one singles, You Are Not Alone and Earth Song. Michael Jackson, history. Hey, I'm Lavelle Smith Jr. Thanks for joining us on the MJ Cast. So take us back to how you originally came to work with Michael Jackson. Okay. Well, I can, I can go right to the very moment. <laughs> it was here in Williamstown, Massachusetts. It was in a big house on Ide Road that was built by James Ide. We, we took this big house uh, because we had to come here and hit the ground running on a big project for Doug Trumbull, who, who had gotten a job with Circus Circus to, to create the entertainment for the new hotel that they're building, um, uh, Luxor. So we accepted that job, but it was necessary for us to pick up our entire lives from Los Angeles. We had two babies, and we bought a house here in in Williamstown and set up to to work with Doug Trumbull for uh, a year and we ended up staying so we came in 92 and in 93 we did all the visual effects on the feature film Stargate so we ended up sort of staying like it was just such an incredibly beautiful place and it seemed like a nice place for children to grow up um, we kept our house in LA but and we went back and forth but we 
decided to keep this um, like pastoral, you know, environment setting <laughs> um, here in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. So 93 was Stargate. 94, we were just starting to negotiate um, doing all the visual effects for uh, creating stunt doubles for the Judge Dredd film starring Sylvester Stallone. That's a whole other story I won't go into. Uh, but at the same time, at the same time, just as that was starting to bubble up, the phone rang and I picked it up in the kitchen. <laughs> and it was Sony <laughs> asking if it was possible to, to make a digital statue of Michael Jackson because they were trying to create a new album cover and Michael in their, you know, from their experience was really picky, which makes all the sense in the world <laughs> to me. <laughs> and if, if they hired an artist to do something, they had the experience of having to rehire the artist repeatedly because Michael wasn't satisfied and, and I guess they would try to finish it to a certain degree, and then he would say, no, I want it this whole different way, and they'd have to do it again. So they were concerned that, you know, maybe someone paints a statue, and Michael says, oh, God, I don't like that angle. Can you turn it the other way? And, of course, you can't do that with a painting, so they would have to hire the painter again. So the idea was to have a digital sculpture. And as I earlier described to you, that process of like making a sculpture and digitizing it, you can you can do that. You can now have a what it's called a database. A you know we in in the computer graphics world it's called a database. But what it is is the sculpture, but it's virtual. So we can put it in basically a lighting studio and look at it from different angles, and we can render it from different angles. We can even move it around or something if we wanted to. So I said yes, we can do that. <laughs> That was the very beginning. It's incredible that all those years ago on that early Marvel leg sculpture that you were pen plotting on the lower leg, you know, the dots of the pen, and then yeah. in 94 you were doing the same method on the actual sculpture you did of the statue. Yeah, and it wasn't that long ago. You know, between them is about, I'm thinking it's about eight years. But there had been quite a lot of progress by then. Because, you know, as I mentioned, we were about to do digital stunt doubles for, you know, who would, would be the stunt double for um, Sylvester Stallone, who's like on a, on a flying motorcycle. And then his sidekick, he's like a comedian. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. But we had to create the digital stunt doubles. And again, I used the same technique. I sculpted them and we digitized them. And though we were nearing a cusp where that would change. And I knew that, but we could not rely 100% at that time on a new technology that was, and, and I'm, I'm certain that, that was the correct decision. And I'm glad it was the correct decision because I got to use, you know, you know my favorite, you know, way of creating a work of art, which is sculpting, you know, actually sculpting in clay. And later on, you know, we, I'm just going to fast forward for a second. Later on, I did some work with a company who was 
who creates a, a sculpting, kind of a sculpting system. So it's haptic. Haptic is kind of like optic would be for your sense of sight. Haptic is for your sense of touch. So they said, hey, Diana, check this out. Here's a, a thing where, you know, you hold this pen and it kind of floats around in the air and you can, but when you, when you touch the sculpture that you're seeing on your screen, you don't actually touch the screen, you just touch the air. But there's a force feedback effect. That, so it stops you like in midair and you can feel the surface. Of the, so that was really cool. So I did that wow. for a while. Uh, it really was cool. It, I could do pretty amazing stuff. I did a bunch of characters for a theme park ride. My daughter, who was nine years old, Io Kleiser, did a very impressive like gorilla, <laughs> which <laughs> showed at like a computer graph at SIGGRAPH. Actually, people were you know they would mob around her watching this nine-year-old like sculpting a gorilla, you know, on the computer. That was just to, that could sh really prove how good that you know that interface was that a child could do it you know <laughs> but anyway going going back to um how it started i i said yeah let's do that you know so that was david coleman who knew us he knew the experimental work we had been doing he knew us from los angeles he called us in in williamstown and he was an art director on um on michael's uh albums so he then sent um, materials for me to look at, which I have in my notebooks <laughs> still. Luckily, they were found this summer. He sent uh, like a picture of Michael at Super Bowl. And I don't know if he sent anything else now, I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm going to have to look back. They didn't, what they did not do, they did not send me stuff. I've seen it, you know, in the recent years, but I, there were other designs that I have seen um, in recent years, but they did not send me any, they did not tell me that anyone else was doing anything on it. They just said, do you want to do this? And I said, yes. And we negotiated. I mean, I told them how it would work, you know, what, how I saw it would work. And they didn't argue with that because I don't think they knew it a different way. Uh, but I suggested that, that I meet Michael for, I'm, now, if I'd been a crazed fan, you know, they probably wouldn't have trusted me because, <laughs> uh, and I very much, you know, loved Michael's work. And, but I was like, I was like a busy person. I was, I was like, oh, okay, here's a job. Here's how you do it. You know? And I said, you know, I could, Michael could stand there and pose for me for a week, <laughs> but logically I didn't think that anyone would think that that was going to work. So I, I went for another method, which I knew to work because my professor that I mentioned before used that method of photography. So I, and I took it to a much higher level though, because I knew I could do this. I asked that I would get um, a photo shoot with cameras around. I have pictures of all this stuff. It's very cool uh, that I drew, you know, sketches of how I wanted it. I wanted eight cameras like high format cameras around Michael and that equidistant around Michael that would be simultaneously shuttered. So I would have reference of Michael frozen in time from those eight angles. And that would be sufficient for me to, to build a sculpture quickly because 
Sony told me they were in a huge hurry. So I put one week for sculpting into the schedule initially, which really is crazy. You know, if you're <laughs> um, to create a 48 inch clay sculpture in one week is, is really, really fast. It's such an important one, but, but I had confidence um, that I could do something, do something really good, actually. <laughs> um, I had a lot of confidence. And uh, it ended up taking longer. Um, so maybe it was good that they gave us a short schedule. Um, and, you know, they were the ones who were slow, you know, at kind of getting back to me and stuff. <laughs> so um, I ended up working, I would say, a total of two weeks on the sculpture. And how much actual input did Michael have around the sculpture itself? Well, he had a lot in that he he knew the pose he wanted to be in. Um, you know, I did work with him on that. I don't know if I can describe exactly what I did. <laughs> I feel like I need to be hypnotized to bring it out. Yeah. But I do remember, like, you know, I don't know, grabbing is the right word, but taking his hands and, you know, placing, you know, like just trying to get, like, the composition and the or practical aspects to work you know so well that's when i'm there right yeah <laughs> um i have lots of uh, in my notebooks i you know it seems i've got every I've, it seems like i have my train ticket you know to it ended up being in new york because michael was there and i was near so sony arranged it and i had asked for him to not have makeup um because i felt that was be distracting you know, in the references for me. I just wanted to see, you know, you know what I mean, how makeup yeah. can change the way things look. And I arrived there and he wasn't there. I think I was supposed to get there early now that I look back at the notes. Nancy McDonald was there. There were like tables and tables of food. Uh, There's a big white space um, to do the shooting. We waited for Michael. Uh, he wasn't that late. But he went into dressing room for 30 minutes. So we had to wait for that. And his bodyguards were eating all the food. <laughs> and they were sweet. They were big guys, giants. And, um, and then he came out full of makeup. <laughs> but it was like, it was magical to meet him, though. Uh, I don't know how to describe it, except that you can, like, you can sense it could I could feel the greatness it was you know greater than I expected you know he really is bigger than life you know even though he's not really that big or anything but it, he just exuded magnificence <laughs> you know I'll, I'll just never forget that and what was he like to interact with as an actual person was he you know funny and polite and what was he like to yeah. talk to yeah, he was sweet and and pol very polite and kind of s really soft spoken as you, as you probably know. We talked quite a bit, and so I do need this hypnotist to get some of that conversation back. But he um, 
he asked me about a sculptor that I didn't know and I don't remember the name of, so that's that's not good. I'll have to keep trying. I mean, maybe somebody knows. Um, he was asking me about some sculptor that he liked and that he wondered if I knew about, and I didn't, and so that was too bad, but <laughs> um, he did ask me about that. He also asked me if I would make him a copy, and I agreed to do that. So Michael ended up with a copy of the, the maquette, the, st- the sculpture. Well, I'm not sure, actually, now. It was definitely my intention, but when Sony asked for I caught a copy to be sent for a production, which is the video that you love, I told them that I would be sending them Michael's copy because I had promised him a copy. So I'm not 100% sure what has happened to it, but I do know that unfortunately it was it was cast by some guy in a, in a production facility in Los Angeles when they received it. And they kind of just set the mold, you know, aside somewhere. They cast it. And then they did some kind of process, which I'm not familiar with, to make that 10-foot version. They, they did some kind of copying process using my, my cast to make a 10-foot. Mine was 48 inches, which is 4 feet. They wanted to make a 10-foot version for the video, which they did. And that's probably the best of all copies out there, though even that doesn't really meet my personal approval. <laughs> I mean, we can go into more of that later. but I guess the project, like from that first sort of photography session to the actual casting of the models and 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 then maybe the the digitizing of it. How long was that whole sort of project, that process? Uh, longer than we budget, longer than we scheduled. <laughs> um, we originally scheduled, I think, six or seven weeks. But you know, I have to look in my notebook. I was pregnant. Uh, you probably know that. Yep. Uh, with Jackson, my youngest. So what ha- happened? Okay, okay. So I sculpted right for a week. And I made some video tapes, and and you can see some of that. Like, if I don't know if you've ever seen that, it looks like ancient footage of me sculpting Michael. I don't know if you've seen that. It's on. I have it on uh, YouTube. Yeah, I've you seen, seen that. It. I've watched yes. that. Yes. Yeah, it's got this kind of Stanley Clark <laughs> soundtrack on it or something. Okay, so I'm sculpting for a week. Uh, I mean, I'm sculpting like day and night. You know, I'm sculpting the entire time. Right. I'm not. I maybe I came out to eat. Babysitters brought my kids in. Jackson was in me. So Jackson was there (laughs) uh, all along. Roman and Io were like, I would say, two and four. And the babysitter bring him in. It's a cute story. Maybe you heard it. But once they could see it taking shape, you know how Michael has a ponytail on the sculpture? Yes. Yeah. I also had a ponytail. I mean, I didn't realize it at the time but <laughs> that there was a similarity. <laughs> but they, when they came in and they could see it taking shape, it was on a stand, uh, you know, a hydraulic lift I had that was maybe you know, just a foot off the ground. It could go up and down. So it was down low enough. And, oh, so cute. The two of them, they came running up to it, and they, with wide arms, and they both, like, double-hugged 
the legs, Michael's legs of the wet clay. Oh. And they're like, Mommy! <laughs> <laughs> because they thought, Mommy's they making a statue of herself. <laughs> yeah, ponytail. Uh, so, you know, that's going on, and I'm working and working. I had two assistants. They helped me with a lot of things. They helped with building an armature, that beautiful armature. You know, I never had such a good armature <laughs> in college. Uh, that's like the metal skeleton that you that you build to hold the clay up because clay does not stand up by itself, you know, unless, unless you do some very, very, very special tricks. Um, but normally if you're building this kind of figure sculpture, you have an armature inside and it holds up the clay uh, as long as the clay is wet. And if the clay becomes dry, it's, it can, it can fall, literally fall right off that. And I've had it happen to me. <laughs> oh. So there's, I have letters in my, in my folder that show me telling them to hurry up with the feedback at Sony because, you know, I was worried that it would dry, even though I tried my best to keep it wet. You know, even you keep on, you know, you put wet cloths on it and spray it and, um, but you also don't want it to be too wet because then it will just melt. <laughs> so it's dangerous business, very dangerous. So when I got to a point where I felt comfortable and it was that end of that, my time, my scheduled allotment of time to build the sculpture. Uh, I made a quick video and some, uh, some photos and sent them off to Sony. Um, and then we waited. I don't know how long, but we waited. And then I got like some handwritten notes from Michael that were, were some of them were written right on printouts, like kind of photo printouts of the sculpture. Sony probably printed out and said, you know, here's what you have to like give feedback on. <laughs> you know, as as you probably know, Michael had so many people, you know, that were doing things for him. You know, so so a process like this is like, you know, there are people insulating him, you know, from me, you know, at that time. So I basically now received. I should have put in my contract and I should work with him directly, right? <laughs> I just thought of that, you know, like 20 years later. Um, you don't think of things. You know, I was young then. I didn't think of a lot of things that I should have probably. But So this summer, my intern who was working on this stuff and my son Roman found, well, first of all, they found the main notebook, which was really, really, really good because I thought it was lost. And it, it appears to contain three of six notes from Michael. So I don't know where the other three are. So they are currently missing. And one of them had a lot of information on it. I remember it. I remember that it was not written on a photo. It was written on a piece of paper, like an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And it had, I mean, not tons of notes, but there were some notes on the face, some suggestions that he had. Uh, I found that he was very astute at understanding exactly how the surface of his face looks. And his artistic anatomy vocabulary was very good, too. <laughs> so he had used the term nasolabial fold. I think, which is 
those, you know, those lines that kind of, they, well, they can become lines that kind of go from the nose and they kind of wrap around the mouth. Um, he was discussing the curvature in that area, um, which is pretty cool. And I, and I saw what he was talking about and uh, made those adjustments. Um, and the really fun one, which I showed at convention, uh, is like a, you know, kind of a frontal view of the of the sculpture. And in Michael's note, he's like, there's a line pointing to his thighs, and he says, "Thighs too fat." <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, they roared with laughter at the convention. <laughs> they also enjoyed seeing some of the pictures that were from the reference shoot. I, I can imagine that. I love the series of pictures of you surrounded by those big boards of the Michael in the, the Super Bowl dangerous pose. <laughs> yeah, don't you want to be like standing there? Um, <sighs> maybe one day we'll do an exhibit. Wow. Uh, with, would it be pretty amazing, right? That, that would, be would be incredible. Absolutely amazing. I, I mean, I do have them. They're well protected. And speaking of those that is how i was able to work that fast i um had them surrounding me and and that was how my assistants made the armature is they could walk over literally walk over and measure you know the um just measure <laughs> measure the images from different angles and build the armature that's in the right position um and i finished the armature actually i put you know kind of set it in place, like exactly where it, the part of the armature was fixed, you know, copper pipes, very heavy. And part of the armature was aluminum wire, which I could, which I could shape. So I did kind of the final part on the armature. And, um, and the other thing that those guys did, Billy and Dan, was I asked them to manufacture out of clay those Gosh, I don't even know what they're called. Those little things on the on the kind of strap, the, the metal gold metal pieces. Oh, that, like the like the bullet chain things he's got around his chest. Do you mean that or the belt? That, are they bullets? I, is that, I don't know. I always interpreted them to be some kind of military equipment. I don't. <laughs> I'm not really sure. You know, I guess we should research this, but yeah, whatever it is, there are a lot of them. They go, you know, there's a, like three you know, straps around the front and, and they go over the back. And so there's like a whole, I didn't even count them. Maybe I should count them, huh? <laughs> uh, there's a whole bunch of those. And um, I knew that would take so much. Of, can you imagine so much of my time? So those guys are like sitting in the corner making those. And they also made the police badge. Oh, yeah. To a degree. I, I kind of finalized that a little bit. And um, they also made the belt elements for the belt and you know I placed everything on um, and that was super helpful and it was really fun to put that stuff on you know because it like dressed it up you know a lot you know it's really that was a nice moment when we got to put all that stuff on what were those pieces uh, made from uh you mean in real life or yeah like when you the, added them to the sculpture were they actually clay like, as well yeah they're wet clay as well okay yeah so the whole thing was wet clay when it was finished and we did video you know, for approval. So the second video um, went over and was approved. So once it was approved, you know, and that's, I mean, I don't know, I can look at my documents, there are a lot of them, to see if there was something other than it's just approved. You know, I don't remember, <laughs> but it was approved. <laughs> so, 
um, that meant we could go on and cast the sculpture so it would be in a material that's permanent. Just just for the non sort of artistic people, <laughs> including myself, can you talk to us about the, the, the difference between the clay sculpture and then what you're saying is a cast more permanent material? Yeah. The clay sculpture, uh, the clay that I work in is water-based clay. Um, it's I can't really describe why it's great, but it's the same stuff that you could dig up, you know, in a stream bed. And it just responds beautifully to your hands and to tools. And it what's great also about it is that it it dries gradually, you know, while you're working. So, you know, it makes sense. Like while you're doing big ideas, blocking out large shapes, you want it to be more wet. I don't mean sloppy wet, but, you know, softer, so you can make big changes. And then as you're doing that, as time goes by, you know, your tools are getting smaller, you know, and you're more sure and confident about, you know, the position of everything. The clay is getting harder, and that's perfect, because now you want it to be harder. You don't want it to be all squishy, because you're using smaller tools, and you're making smaller changes. So it's just a beautiful medium um, in which to work. Sometimes people work in another kind of clay which doesn't dry at all. It's called plasticine. It's kind of very popular. It's kind of oily and smelly. You may have played with it as a child. Yep. Um, it yep. never ever dries. It always always smells bad. Um, <laughs> it, it it works very well. It's just I wanted to use the you know the best material though for the sculpting process. And that was water-based clay. So, so that it will. So it starts out squishy and wet, and then it dries. But it it's on an armature, so it can't be the final material. And the reason that it is is as it dries on the armature, it will crack. It'll just crack and crumble up and break into nothing. So you can't just sit there and let it dry. You have to keep it wet until you're ready to cast it. And casting is where you make a mold. You, you surround it by materials. And in this case, it was a silicone mold surrounded by a, I think it was plaster. It might have been hydrocal, which is like plaster but much harder. And this was done by the technicians while I was giving birth to Jackson. <laughs> so that, the timing worked out exceptionally well. Because it, that was a pretty long process, you know. That was days where they had to do the casting. So, and I, I, you know, I don't mind doing it, but it, you know, it's not the best part of the process. So, somebody else can do it. You know. I hope your labor wasn't for days. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. The birth or the the, the casting. <laughs> no, but I was out. You know, I it was wonderful. It's wonderful here because the the hospital is so much smaller than um, Los Angeles, where Io and Roman were born. I was just there a day for each. And uh, here I stayed three days. It was, you know, and the nurses were always coming. There were 20 of them. <laughs> and they were always helping me. And um, there's only one other baby, so there's no mix-up possible, really. <laughs> um, so so three days I really got to, like, relax and recover. And when I got home, the, the cast was ready. So I took one of the casts and I put it on my bed 
and I put the uh, Jackson, the two Jacksons. One is a sculpture, and <laughs> one was my baby. I put them both on the bed, and Jackson, one of them slept most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> the other one, uh, I put, you know, the, remember I mentioned these architectural tapes? They're very, very skinny tapes. Yes. I taped the grid lines all over that surface, and for the big parts of the grid, and then I got like a little kind of a permanent marker, very narrow one, and, and drew in uh, the finer grid elements all everywhere, all over. I don't even know how many polygons it was, but maybe um, maybe um, 10,000. Wow. It took me about two weeks on the bed <laughs> with Michael, uh, and, Michael and, and Jackson. Michael and Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we shipped it off to Los Angeles where we ha- we're not using the same Polymus 3Space digitizer. We now are using FaroArm, which we recently found. So now I have that for the museum exhibit someday. Um, it's, it's a new, it was, an, at the time, a new way to digitize. digitize. It was not... Um, it didn't use a magnetic signal. It uses the relative... The relation of the angles of like the kind of the the segments of this arm. So it's like an arm with a metal, an aluminum arm with three segments, and you can and they're like a pen on the end, kind of like the the sculpting tool I mentioned to you earlier, which was a later product, but even later product. But this is back in ninety. So you can pick up that pen, and these three segments—it's uh, long, like like kind of as long as an arm, like a person, like a long, like a basketball player's arm, uh, but it has three segments instead of two. Uh, but the arm just kind of follows you, and whenever you place the pen, um, a calculation is made with just because of the relative positions of those arms. Coordinate mesh, you know, a, a coordinate grid is. Um, is uh, built up from the position of the the pen, just in the same way. But that's what we did with Michael, and it was digitized in Los Angeles by Santo Rano, who uh, eventually ended up working for Warner Warner Records, and he also does a lot of really fabulous stuff with kids in Los Angeles. He and his um, husband partner do some great stuff with uh, with children. Um, like art, arts kind of programs and stuff. But he's a great guy. He he digitized Michael, and the data came back to Williamstown, Massachusetts, and it was time to um, to make a scene. Um, we had already done sketches. I did sketches of plans and stuff. And in the meantime, we were you know going back and forth with Sony on like what's the background going to be and you know he wanted it to be marble like a white marble statue and it actually is a white marble statue a lot of people seem to be confused by that uh, because of the lighting on the album cover it's, it's kind of dark but it is a white marble statue that's dark in the image so I do have some early renderings that do show it to very much look like a white marble statue because it's like lit from above or something but we scrapped that idea and we decided to have it be kind of at sunset with like a dramatic red sky and like lights that are lighting it up from below. 
Um, I got the sky from a photographer in in the in the Berkshires named Dan McCoy. And it's just a beautiful image that Sony agreed to use. Yeah, it's it's absolutely stunning. That's I think that's uh, the the photo itself is just such a brilliantly striking image. And yeah, it is. I'd like to know as well about Michael's reaction. Did did Michael react to the the finished sculpture as well as the the image? Or well, I don't I don't know that I have. I mean, I know that he wanted one. <laughs> I know they asked to send one. I think they asked. For uh, but it was always through them, so I never had you know after that I never had my own personal communication. So yeah, if I made one really big mistake was like you know not like becoming pen pals or you know, it's, <laughs> you know and it's and it was different then you know people didn't have iPhones and you know hey call me on your phone and, you know <laughs> let's text me later or whatever because it it I think it would have been really different if it had been now you know then back then. It, it's kind of the dark ages in, in communications. You yeah, know? yeah. Because when I look at these notebooks, it's 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 incredible. Like you guys would be like, "What? What is this?" It's like everything's like facts. Everything's a facts. <laughs> I know what a fax is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we use. It's them amazing them because <laughs> fax paper often fades. So it's good that you've actually still got them. Yeah, I think everything was really well taken care of. Well, I guess because no one looked at it for 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any plans to digitize and uh, all of those documents and for future purposes? Or? I'm not sure if we did or not. Yes, yeah, some. Well, th- th- it was also full of slides too. So yeah, I have started scanning. I got a very good slide scanner. So if you looked at MJ, I don't know what I call it, Michael Jackson History Statue Facebook page. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently put some images one is in the profile picture and one is in the uh whatever that other one's called (laughs) the cover image the cover photo yeah um those are those are recently scanned slides and they're just really nice i mean they're just beautiful lighting and um i think they were taken with my pentax k1000 35 millimeter camera that my dad gave me those all the photos from the studio I'm just going to the page now to refresh my memory. I've seen them before, but oh, that's right, yeah. So the the one in the cover photos, it's a rear a rear shot, isn't it, of the ponytail? Yeah, I mean, how often do Stunning. people see the backside of these things? <laughs> of the original, I mean, this is the original. This is not, you know, those copies that they they put up everywhere. It's so the the ones that like the. I'm just looking now at the image of you. I think you're touching his lower back. That's the main profile picture. You can really tell when looking at the the sculpture that how much more detail there is in that than the the big, you know, um, ten meter versions that were produced later for the promotional purposes. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't really want to badmouth things, but I, yeah, they're just not they're just not that good. You know, they. I mean, they. I'm very honored that you know, and flattered or whatever that my statue was copied. I'm not very happy that it, you know, was copied in this way. I was not aware that they were doing it. You know, it was like some big campaign. I, I don't, I wouldn't blame Michael. I, I cannot imagine for a second that he had much to do with it, except, you know, he might've said that he wanted, you know, large 
copies of it. Uh, I do believe he would have said that. But that would be the extent of it, you know? He would say that to somebody, and then all these people who all want to feel really important, like, make a bunch of decisions, you know? And not one person thinks of, like, contacting the original sculptor, you know? Yeah. I could have supervised these things, but maybe they thought, oh, that would be too expensive. She would, we'd have to pay her. She'd have to travel in, you know, on airplanes and stuff. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what they were thinking, but maybe they thought, oh, somebody can copy this, you know, but maybe they didn't real realize, you know, the value of actual sculpture versus, you know, just copies. You know, these are technicians that are making those. They're not, Yeah. you know, I, Maybe they're sculptors, but they're not. They didn't nail it at all <laughs> in any of them. I look forward to someday being able to. I'd like to say finish. You know, I, I wouldn't probably wouldn't change it, but I'd like to have the opportunity to. You know, now twenty years later, be able to refine it to the the best degree that I can, knowing more about Michael. You know, and how I think he might have wanted it. Uh, that is my dream. <laughs> That would be incredible. Just in reference to those sort of promotional statues, I guess it might have been based on yours, but then when they have to scale it up, if you were to actually really scale up something, you would probably need to change the scale of some parts of the, I guess, anatomy, really. like I'm thinking if you're scaling a statue up that big, if you're standing at the bottom of it, the head might appear smaller unless you sort of scaled it. Would that be correct? You are very much correct. And I don't fully, because I don't do this all the time, I don't fully, I, I, I believe that is very much true. But I don't know always what you would have to do. And so my plan for when I do do a large blow up is I'm going to work virtually. I'm going to go into a virtual reality environment, you know, like uh, with a, what are they called? The, um, Virtual reality goggles. The Oculus Rift. Yeah, yeah, like Oculus or something. And you know, build you know, build the model while looking at it that way. Wow. So, so I could be my size, you know, or I could be six feet. I could be whatever size, different size people, you know, milling around underneath. I could be in an airplane flying by. I, you know, I could check it out from any angle. And then make some decisions as to you know, some of those kind of changes that you mentioned. And make sure it looks like Michael. And make sure it's a monumental depiction of him. I can tell you what, if that was ever created and made into a physical thing that, that fans could visit, it would, I, in my opinion, that would absolutely become a, a site of almost pilgrimage for fans around the world to go and visit. Absolutely. I think a destination. One of my favorite locations is Gary, Indiana, because uh, it's Michael's birthplace and because the area needs something uplifting. Um, and I think there's a close enough, you know, huge airport, you know, so that international um, visitors can come. It doesn't have to be the only place, but maybe it is, you know, at least to start with. Europe can be really good. Australia? <laughs> yes, I'll take, please. I'll take one here in Perth, please. I've, I've got a backyard it could go in. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a process. You know, it's 
lots of people are going to have to approve it, but if the money's behind it and, and I have it, I, it doesn't take me long to, to put my vision in a package. I think I could do it. Um, I, I'd like to see a performing arts venue and even if it's just outdoor and, um, museum and store and coffee shop. And I mean, I think of it as nonprofit for me now, but, um, I don't really know. It depends on like, you know, who helps to pay for it and stuff like that. But, but it is my dream, you know, it, 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 it's a, it's a growing part of my life, you know, to, to continue this journey to, you know, to resolve. I mean, and it's not because I would want to take advantage of the fact that Michael is no longer with us. I, I mean, every day I think about, I wish you were here, you know, I kind I really feel like it would be so much better. I think the world would be a better place. And I feel like we would have reconnected. I really do. I mean, I think we would have reconnected because I may be the only sculptor whose work he approved. I don't know if you guys know of anything else, but I can't really don't. think of any like, other. I know there are <laughs> other sculptures, but I think they might have been made after. Yes. Yeah. There's certainly lots of um, sort of like wax sculptures that are at um, like Madame oh, yeah. Tussauds and places like that, but I don't know if they were directly approved by Michael or not. I doubt they would have been. The original ones were back in the 80s and 90s, I think. Yeah. Not. And that's a different kind of thing in a way yeah, because in, the intention is to create, you know, kind of a visually realistic, photorealistic effect. Yeah. I mean, that can be art, certainly. I'm not saying it's not, but I don't know if it's in, in really in the sculpture category. You know, yeah. I don't know if that's, <laughs> you know what I mean? The art sculpture category. Um. Jumping back just a little bit, is the original image, uh, the portrait-shaped shot with the tiny little people walking about around the giant uh, building base of the statue and then the statue on top? Yes, absolutely. The The concept, which was Michael's, was to be, you know, this giant statue like he had seen in Russia. The He saw the Mama of Kurgan, which is a woman that's draped in cloths and thrusting a sword high into the air. She's like 300 feet tall up to her head. She's 171 feet tall. He imagined for this concept, he imagined himself like that. And so in order to do that, you have to have some super tiny people. (laughs) Uh, You have to have some kind of scale reference. And that was the concept. Um, And everyone kind of agreed with that. I'm sure him included. Then they made a decision to crop it, and I was not part of that. You know, we we gave them very high-res image that had, you know, the people below and all that stuff. Um, and they did use that, as you know, you know, in other products. But the CD and LP final, you know, image is cropped, as you know, and... I was pleasantly, you know, I was <laughs> pleasantly pleased, I was going to say, um, pleased with that because it, it zoomed in, you know, it was, it was closer because the CDs are pretty small. Mm. 
it, the cassettes were even smaller. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What was the original um, ratio of the image? Is it square? Because I know there's a DVD that came out, which is like a really tall version of it. Uh, I, I think it's, I think it is square. But, you know, I'm going to look in one of these notebooks if you want. Yeah, I would say they're square. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there were a bunch of them. We did lots of outtakes. Wow. From from different angles or always from that same angle? Uh, once we fell into this one angle, we kind of stuck with it, but there are some different angles initially. Huh. Wow. That would be very special <laughs> to see. <laughs> My like, mind is <laughs> racing. Yeah. <laughs> There's also um, a fabulous test that we're still trying to locate on our backup tapes but it's it's surprising how long ago it is in terms of digital archive technology you know it's it's only 20 years or 22 years i guess but in digital archive technology it's like ancient history and i'm still at work trying to figure out how to get some stuff off of i'm sure that there's this really cool stuff on it. And one is a animation that we did with the statue. We, we motion captured Jeff, like jumping off of something as though we were jumping off that building, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so we took that motion capture and we tweaked it in animation and then we rendered it as gold. So it, it's a gold statue jumping off of kind of a marble building with a blue sky background um it was a great test it was just a fabulous test i don't think michael ever saw it wow i know it's really a shame you know when you have so many people in an organization yeah sometimes those lines of communication are different difficult to yeah keep open yeah 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 we could have done some really cool stuff i even have little storyboards of ideas that we, that we had with like kids in it and stuff but they see michael jumping off of a poster and Jumping out of a poster and the kids um, are reacting to it. Awesome. Yeah. I just wanted to talk about the um, the cropped image in and in comparison to the full image with the giant plinth building and the people. Um, even though that I guess the building and the people were there for scale and reference to show the the sort of ginormous size of the full standing statue, when they decided to crop it and zoom in a bit and just have the background only. I think that for me anyway, the scale did translate for me, even as a, a on the cassette and then the CD and then the LP. And then later I got a beautiful big block mount poster of the uh, wow. album cover. It always, always, always to me looked that ginormous scale Yes. So I think that it was such a, a well-done sculpture and image that even though they, they did crop it, I think the scale did translate. Yeah, I think you're right. And, I, you know, I deeply appreciate what you said. <laughs> that, and that made me feel really good. We're building our first house and I can't wait for to be able to hang that block mound up again. I've never hung it in this current rental house. It's covered in uh-huh. bubble wrap. 
And I see it every day and I go, I cannot wait to hang that history <laughs> block mount back up. It's always been one of my, well, it has been pretty much my favourite album cover. So I am very much looking forward to drilling holes in walls that are mine and <laughs> hanging that again. <laughs> yeah, who cares about the walls, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Oh, wow. Take, give me a picture when you do. I will, absolutely. I'll send it on the your Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? Somebody, a fan... Um, showed me some pictures of when he was like really young. Uh, I haven't gotten around to it yet, but he showed me pictures of him as a child trying to pose as Michael. <laughs> on the and I was like, that's so cool. I'm going to post that. You know, I haven't done it yet because I've got all these other things to do, but I have to put it on my list and do that. But, and then ask people to, if they have done that as well and, or go ahead and pose if they want, you know, <laughs> like, um, but it was so cute to see the child do it. I love that idea. That's great. We <laughs> actually, speaking of um, fans doing things with the with the statue, we actually, Q and I know a guy um, who lives, I think, in Indonesia, and his name's Fadley. And I think, I'm pretty sure he actually got another statue, like a copy of your statue, like a giant version, different to the Sony ones, uh, made, and he's got it in his backyard. A giant one? Yeah it's, yeah, it's really big. It's like a two-story house size. Uh, it was part of, um, oh. gosh, you're going back in history, Jamin. We spoke about this on episode one in season one. That was our, my first find of the week. Yeah. Uh, it was part of a New Year's celebration in, um, I think it was Jakarta. It was in Indonesia. Yes. And, what? yeah, they actually got a local artist to sculpt it out of foam and then I think covered in something to weatherproof it. And then after the well, celebrations, instead of destroying it, Fadley said, well, can I take it? Can I have it? And he's got it in his backyard. Oh, wow. Well, that name does sound familiar. I think I may have communicated with him on, on Facebook or something. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> I'm glad he didn't say that he bought one of those. Oh, because I remember I mentioned the guy um, had done a cast. Yes. Yeah, that still is producing some bootlegs and has, you know, has done so on on Amazon. And that's a bit distressing because this guy has absolutely no right to do it, you know. Yeah. Uh both the state and I stopped him. Uh but I think he's feeding them to like some other Italian group or something who is selling them for Quite a lot, you know, considering that none of them have the rights to do that. And it's distressing because because I, well, you know, I don't obsess over it. I just, I figure that I'm going to move forward and and present my own series at some point. You know, there'll be a, yeah. a positive, yeah. you know, resolution. But they do, they are out there. It, they're easy to identify, not cool. <laughs> and that is the police badges are kind of sticking out more. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen that, but... Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Wondering if that's the one that LaToya has. LaToya's got a gold version of the statue that's... It seems to be pretty big. I don't know, maybe about a meter high or something, and it's gold. I wonder if that's how she got it or if uh, there was another... Well, I'll write that down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she should have a real one. I mean, she really should have one that I do, not yeah, yeah. some, you know, I'm not going to say the word. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just call them bootlegs. <laughs> yeah, 
flag version. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but I'd like be stuff... happy to want to buy one from you, Don. Oh my god. <laughs> well, you will be able to someday. I personally would love to own a history statue myself. Like, I mean, of any kind of size, but like for me, the perfect size, I would love one, like a little mini one that I could put on my office desk that I could look at next to my computer or something like that. What are the chances of fans being able to grab something like that off you one day in the future? I think the chances are pretty high. (gasps) Um, Oh my goodness. (laughs) Because that is actually in the process. Um, we have a plan to do that. I I'm in the process of like sort of blueprinting it, you know, so that it's a, a product proposal type of thing because it has to get approved. Um, unlike the you know the patch, which was you know more a different kind of thing, but it doesn't have Michael's image in it. Uh, but the patch did really well, so um, there will be another series of patches. And um, a desktop monument is in the works. Oh, wow. Yes. And it's going to be probably the best copy of, a, you know, best small history copy out there. I mean, I know there's some really crappy ones from, you know, from Asia that, you know, that you can get. But this will, this will be accurate. Anyone Fine from enough. the estate listening to this, this is exactly the kind of thing that a lot of fans really desperately want to spend their money on. So please approve this product because I will buy so many of them. (laughs) (laughs) And any bigger sizes as well. Just saying, I would buy small ones for my library case and then I would buy meter-high ones if they're for sale as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, the the hope is also to do um, kind of art series, which will be bronzes, and uh, or aluminum or both or you know um in the actual size which is four feet and other sizes are a definite possibility as well um and then we may be able to do the four foot size in another material that's not as expensive as bronze the bronze ones would be pretty expensive just because it is um but other ones um other materials we may we may be able to um to make that size at a more affordable price for fans. Especially for shipping costs, because heaven knows even shipping a book to Australia costs an arm and a leg sometimes. (laughs) Well, yeah, there is that too. (laughs) (laughs) So you've spoken with us already about the, um, the, the clay sculpture itself, the photography around the sculpture, and then Sony creating the the album cover. How involved were you with the creation of the teaser short film itself? Not at all. I mean, I shouldn't say not at all. <laughs> I did describe it earlier, but I'll do it quickly. It's basically the sculpture that I did that I that I photographed and videotaped and got approved by Michael and became a digital image and became the album cover was the basis for the statue that was put in the teaser. So... And I did describe how I sent off Michael's copy to Sony, and then they did stuff with it. They used it along the way, you know, to get a 10-foot version copied, um, which was then used in the... But they didn't... I was not involved in the production of the video at all. You know, I was... My involvement was providing the statue, really, because they copied it, you know. I didn't 
sculpt the 10 foot version, but it's, it's a copy of what I did. So that's how I am involved. And I guess you could say I, I was, yeah. I didn't get any money for it. <laughs> if you're wondering about that. <laughs> I just think it's interesting that you had such a long history in, um, you know, computer generated imagery and that, you know, Sony didn't call on you to be involved in that way yeah, in, the, in the video. It would have been an, a great fit. Well, computer-generated imagery back then was so new. And like I mentioned before, Michael, you know, was kind of like a king with, like, lots of subjects, you know, hovering around him. All these subjects are trying to be better than all the other subjects, and everyone's trying to make decisions. And, and so people... If, if Michael says, I want a video, you know, or something, or anything, people are going to, they're just going to decide who they want to work with based on whatever, you know, fashion or who they know, you know, who they've worked with before, who they're comfortable with. So there's a machine, you know, that's, we were outsiders, I guess, in their mind, you know, so... It's it is strange to me though since we did do this breakthrough work you know creating that that statue and had done some firsts you know right around that time like um, the digital stunt doubles for for Judge Dredd was a first in filmmaking history but you know these people who are the subjects you know they don't. They don't know all this, you know, they just know what they know, you know, and, and so things just happen the way they happen. You can't always um, really know why, you know. It is a shame, though. It, it seems like it would have been a perfect fit to have been involved. What was it like for you uh, when you maybe first saw that short film and for the when you actually saw the history album promotion begin? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> well, so like I mean, the realization of all of your work into that, I guess, you know, small sculpture and then the yeah. real, realizing of it worldwide. Well, it started with Nancy McDonald calling me and, oh, I'm sorry. Is her name Nancy Donald? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> sorry, Nancy. She called me and said, Diana, I have some news for you. You know, we are releasing the the history album with your image on it. <laughs> I was like, what? Yay! You know, I mean, oh my god. <laughs> I mean, I just hadn't heard for a while and kind of forgot about it. I heard nothing for a while. I don't remember how long it was. So I just assumed they were doing what they do at at um, big companies. Just maybe maybe they weren't doing it. I I didn't. I knew nothing. But I I I. I must have like kind of <laughs> hit the floor, you know, I don't know. I um, <laughs> fainted. It was great. It was just so great. And then I was starting to see like all these things happening, you know, like people were telling me, you know, like, oh, there's this gigantic Michael Jackson, you know, of your image of your sculpture in Times Square, you know, and a Sunset Boulevard on the um, Tower Records, there was a, I got to say, really, 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 I don't know if that's enough reallys, really bad. <laughs> I don't know. Have you seen pictures of that one? I know the one you're talking about. It's like a painted 
version, a flat painted well, version, isn't no, it? No, it's three D. No, it was three D, but oh, it was like, okay, I was confused with another like one. The head was kind of blown up or something. <laughs> I know it was just so bad. I'm sorry to say that, but um, but again, you know, I was flattered that it was, you know, my my creation that that they were using as the way to market this. It must have been amazing to to just go into a record store and see that album cover everywhere. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's my work. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was very proud of that, and still am. I I remember being around. I think twelve years old, roughly, and going into my local record store where I was growing up and seeing that that album, that iconic cover, and just it just like I didn't know much about Michael Jackson then at that point. Like I only became a fan a few years later. But even then, I remember looking at that cover and thinking that has got to be a special album, whatever it is. Oh wow, that's so <laughs> one cool. Of, one of the things I always regret not getting my hands on was actually one of the um, cardboard standees of the statue. I guess it was a five, five and a half, six foot, just a cardboard cutout of the statue that they used standing in the record stores. And I always yeah. wish I'd got one of those. I know I've seen them, but I don't have one myself. <laughs> well, if I get two, I'll let you know. Okay. <laughs> I have one too. You mentioned earlier, Diana, that you uh, had another little story about uh, seeing Michael Jackson around four years before you started working with him. Something to do with you and your brother? Yeah, actually, it's the same location I just mentioned, Sunset Boulevard. Um, it was Tower Records. The the um, the hideous, I, sorry to say, but hideous version <laughs> of it was a big statue on, uh, or just, I don't know what is paper mache or something on top of the tower records, popular music section, which was on the North side of sunset Boulevard. My brother, as you know, from the earlier part of the interview, I was brought up in the classical music household and, and my brother, you know, starting at age five, you know, gradually became a classical music expert. And he was pretty young back at this time. And, he always came to L.A. We were in L.A. for about seven years. He always came during those years around his birthday, which was in May, to celebrate his birthday with Jeff and me. And um, I remember I was pregnant. So uh, it must have been 1991. No, it must have been 1990. 1990, sorry. <laughs> My first child was born in 1990. So May of 1990. And my brother wanted to go, his name's Gregory, he wanted to go to um, look at Mozart box sets. And so I, I said, great, I'll take you to Tower Records. And Tower, the Tower Records classical is on the opposite side of the street. And so Gregory and I parked on the north side, um, northeast side. So we had to walk a bit of a way. So we parked on the northeast side and of sunset and um the cross street i don't know it where tower records is on either side of sunset but it's also at a cross street and we get out of the car and we walk along the north side of sunset and there's this really cool car like a um rolls royce or something and it's a um convertible with 
a beautiful wood panel um, dashboard, just absolutely gorgeous. Um, and I just said, wow, that's a nice car, you know. And my brother's so focused on music that he was like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so we walked over the corner, we crossed the street down to the south side, which is where the um, classical Tower Records is, because he wants to look specifically at Mozart box sets. And so we walk in. It doesn't seem like there's anyone in the store except a person right at the door at the register. And I, I just wanted to get right to it. So I said, where are the Mozart box sets? And he pointed to where they are, you know, which aisle and the location. So, so I walked first and Gregory followed me to the aisle that he pointed to. They're kind of high. So, you know, I didn't see anyone. And it went right to the spot where they were. And then I smelled like the great perfume. <laughs> and <laughs> I looked, you know, in the direction of the great perfume. And it was Michael Jackson. Whoa. I mean, absolutely, without any doubt. Wow. I mean, I don't know what I did. You know, I got to say that I must have frozen. <laughs> Because it was Michael Jackson, and what he do, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, um, oh my goodness. <laughs> I just wasn't expecting, you know. There was, I thought there was nobody in the store, you know. And then he was also because there are a lot of Mozart box sets. He was also looking at Mar Mozart box sets. He was right next to me. I could have touched him. I mean, I walked right up to him. Oh my god! So there I am staring at Michael Jackson like a dope, and he. <laughs> I guess he doesn't find that comfortable, so he, like, slips out. He <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, Michael. I really am. You know, I, I couldn't help it. Um, so we finish our shopping. We go to the um, counter, and, and the person there is like, did you see Michael Jackson? <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, of course we did. Um, and, and so we, you know, we purchased, and we walk out the door, and that car that I saw earlier, it comes flying around the corner from the, the Sunset Boulevard on the right, turning down the, the side street that the Tower Records entrance was on, or is, I don't know if it is now, um, and drives right past us, and it's Michael Jackson driving that car. He's he, wearing was <laughs> he was driving it. He was wearing a red shirt, black pants, a hat, a black hat with his um, curly um, couple strands of hair coming down. It was, I mean, it was just without any doubt, Michael Jackson. But I got to say, I was a little shocked to see that he would just be driving around by himself in a convertible. <laughs> well, it's not surprising to hear he was going really fast because there's a lot of stories about Michael when he did drive, he would drive really fast. Yeah, <laughs> but it was him. I saw it. And I saw the car initially. The whole thing was really... Kind of surreal, especially because, you know, he's this pop star. You'd, you'd think he'd be in the pop section, right? But he's in the Mozart box set section, which is like links to my early life and my brother. And yeah, it's kind of, it, life is really amazing. And when you met him four years later, when you were, you know, photographing him, <laughs> did you... Did you tell him that story? Like I, I've been asked that a lot now, and I, I, I gotta say, I was, I didn't, I didn't think of it. I was, I was doing my work, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
original hits, a double CD of over two and a half hours of music, 15 brand new songs, including the smash hit Scream. Michael Jackson, History Out of Love. Hey, this is really, really Brad Sundberg, studio engineer and technical director for Michael Jackson and host of In the Studio with MJ. You're listening to the MJ cast. How, how did your professional life progress after the history album? I think we continued to work on Judge Dredd after that. I think I had to go pretty big in production. I was, we, we did motion capture and we found that I had some of the, you know, skeletal proportions of Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> so I would like hop on this kind of fake bike thing and be motion captured as a like kind of flying motorcycle bike rider. Um, that was kind of fun. I also sculpted the Stallone and his kick sidekick, which got digitized and animated and all that stuff. It was pretty cool. And then we, a little bit later on, we moved uh, our facility, which was down in Lenox, um, originally to service Doug Trumbull, who I mentioned before, to Mass Moco, which was a museum of, con- was, which is going to be a museum of contemporary art housed in a million square feet um, uh, mill, like old factory mill from the mid-1800s, 19th century. So we moved in there and um, started to do a testing work for, here Marvel comes into it again, for a Spider-Man ride for Universal Studios, something had never been done before. Um, it was an amazing ride. We, we developed the technology in the first year. I was like 96. And for three years in 97, 98, 99, we... We executed all the shots for the ride, which um, it's a. It, it when we started, it was seventy millimeter stereoscopic film projection, and there's a moving car that seats like twelve people, and and it travels through this space that's kind of decorated to match the film that's projected, and stereos- stereoscopic imagery of Marvel characters pops off the screen you know even at times popping off the screen and landing on the car like and you feel you know when spider-man lands on the car you feel it and it really looks like he's landed on the car right in front of you but it's just an illusion um uh 13 screens stereoscopic um you you go it looks like you go above a city it looks like you have a big fall um it's a pretty exciting ride it's just four minutes we met Stan Lee during the process. Um, he, he wrote it. He thought it was like, we, actually, we screened it for him in Los Angeles first. And he was just so blown away by it to see Spider-Man um, in 3D for the first time. And we sort of became friends. Uh, he gave us like a pass to a universal party because they didn't invite us. And we were kind of mad and we told him. And he was like, oh, well, I'm going to leave. I'll give you the passes. <laughs> so he was really sweet, um, really nice guy. I think we hooked up with him later on some... Uh, another potential project. Let's see from there. <laughs> we did some more. Um, we did a ride film for Bush Gardens, which was Corkscrew Hill, where we got to create the characters and pretty much set the whole stage. And we have heard recently that they're, they, they closed it after 10 years 
put something else in, and they've recently gotten overwhelming requests to bring Corkscrew Hill back to Bush Gardens. So that could be good. They want to maybe refresh it. And we did the Radio City Music Hall stereoscopic opening. Um, so a bunch of location-based stuff. Um, in the meantime, we worked on three of the X-Men 1, 2, and 3. The Mystique character, primarily, we focused on the Mystique character and all of her transformations, which were pretty involved. Um, we also did the one, which was Jet Li um, having to fight with himself in a different temporal space. Um, so we had to do uh, facial... Um, we had to put like a different face on... <laughs> we had to put his face on another guy so he can fight himself in these um, scenes. So that was pretty cool. Um, we did the surrogates where we made um, Bruce Willis look younger in many, many, many shots. And, and then um, Jeff became visual effects supervisor on Raw 1, which was Bollywood film, the uh, biggest Bollywood film ever, maybe, or up to that point. Um, and he's working on a, a, a new... Um, uh, he's still negotiating a new um, feature film action movie. And I've been doing more live action for nonprofits, but I can also, like, promo type work. I have done a lot of that and has had um, a profound effect on my life. Um, might need to also do some that are for, for profits um, so that I can make a little money, but really enjoyed doing the, um, the work that I have done so far with World Connect and some other uh, local nonprofits. Thank you so much for answering with such detail. Um, I, I was very excited earlier when you said you had been involved in uh, the Stargate film in 1993. That is one of my favorite films. And the, the effects in that were, um, I think, groundbreaking and truly memorable. And really, they inspired all of those sort of TV shows that followed. But the film has always been my favorite. And then X-Men 1, 2, and 3. X-Men was huge game changer in Hollywood in how uh, comic book films and superheroes were portrayed. So that was awesome to hear about. And Mystique, like I always watch the extras on the DVD and the Blu-ray. So I don't know if you're featured in any of them. I might have to go back and check. But I had learnt about the creation of the effects for Mystique's changing appearance and her her, tra her transformation from the Blu-ray features and things. So that was awesome to hear about. And the Spider-Man ride, being a big sort of Disney and theme park nerd, I haven't <laughs> been to Universal, but I hope you know that the Spider-Man ride is still held in such humongously high regard as one of the greatest theme park rides ever made. That is nice to hear. Because it really was incredible. It, it, the idea was great, which came from Universal. And we solved some amazing problems in that that required um, a way to compensate for viewers constantly viewing the stereoscopic imagery from a different position because it's a moving car. So not only is the imagery being seen from an odd angle, you know, as a car might approach a screen and then kind of spin a little bit and turn away from it. 
it's not like you see it straight on, you know. And normally, if you watch a movie, you want to be like in the middle of the theater so you get the best view. So, what we did was we we compensated. We we wrote some software that would compensate for a different position. We had the car position information as it changed over the course of the ride. So for every you know frame of position that the car was in, the imagery had to be altered so that it had like it was like a sweet spot always. You know, so from one angle you would see it. Things looked really looked like they worked. We were projecting like a, like I mentioned a city where we go up above the city and then we fall down between the buildings. This is all being projected onto roidal screens, which are, you know, it's like the in the surface is like the inside of a donut or like part of the inside of a donut. So it's this curved in several directions shape, and imagery has to be projected on that and still look like rectilinear. You know, like buildings can't look warped; they have to look. Like they're in stereo and they're straight, <laughs> so there was that level of compensation, you know, to straighten out the buildings after they, you know, the projection gets stretched. You know, they you have to compensate it to straighten it back out. And so when you're flying around above the buildings, it really feels like you're flying around above buildings. It doesn't. You don't feel at all like you're just in a car that's traveling around on the ground you know back in the day when we were doing it universal didn't want us to tell anyone that the car didn't lift off the ground because it really does feel like it does and and um what was fun for me was when i viewed it for the first time in context you know at universal i screamed when we were like flying we, when the car appears to be flying down to hit the street. And I knew, and I worked on it for three years. I knew what it was happening. I knew how it was happening. And I still screamed when I wrote it. <laughs> I'll get there one day. I'll get there one day. <laughs> one day, one day. You also mentioned before, Diana, that you had a, a great experience at Kingvention uh, last year, which is an excellent Michael Jackson convention, I guess, that happens every year in the UK. Um, what were your experiences like there? It was just perfect you know from start to finish i mean it was much much better than i expected you know because um pez jacks and sebastian me um you know just it was the first one last year so you know they said hey you know we have this idea we want to do convention and um do you want to be one of the one of our you want to be um you know one of our star guests and i was like oh wow you know thanks that sounds good but, you know, they were starting this, you know, on their own kind of from scratch. So, you know, how good could it be? But I got to say it was great. Everything, you know. I did an interview with um, with Pez on this beautiful stage. They lit it so nice. And the audience, wow, it was like riding a red carpet. I felt so welcomed and comfortable. Their energy, you know, was feeding me. <laughs> I just felt like they there was so much love, you know, and I think we got through that interview just so smoothly, you know. It, I think he had a plan with all the questions and stuff, but when I answered something one way, he, I think he kind of started to improvise and shift, and um, and it, it just worked out really well. You now I did a lot of signing of 
you know, there should be a lot of programs out there that are signed with the Diana with Heart signature. Um, I think I did that for like at least three hours in a row. <laughs> wow. But it was really sweet, you know, to speak to each and every person, you know, because uh, a lot of them didn't know, you know about me before. And they were just so thrilled to, to, you know, I guess learn about a new story, you know, that related to Michael. Well, that was really the sort of first time you've had the platform or the opportunity to speak about and share that story, I guess. I think that is true. I mean, I, 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 I probably have shared the story at other, because I've done talks, you know, but they weren't about that. You know, they were about some other thing that I did, you know, Little Miss Spider or Spider-Man or, you know, some other thing that that I worked on. Um, and I would share it. But, you know, probably there weren't those kind of eager fans in the audience, um, you know, quite as much as there were. <laughs> King Vention um, was very, very intense. Um, it was just lovely. I, I had dinner with um, with Rob Hoffman. And oh, great. the night before, you know, the convention started, um, and it was fun to realize that we had the same favorite songs from the history album. Oh, cool. Which are Stranger in Moscow and Earth Song. Good choices. Uh, and, um, and meeting Jonathan Morris was really nice listening to his talk. Listening to both of their talks was really, really special. Uh, I also met... Eddie Welfel. Um, it was fun meeting him because he speaks German and I speak a bit. I mean, really little bit. Uh, but that was kind of fun. We could, you know, relate on. And also, Eddie and I also speak Photoshop. So uh, there was a lot of that. And um, I don't know if you noticed this, but Pez, uh, Sebastian figured out um, last January or this past January that Eddie and I share the same birthday. Oh, what a coincidence! Yeah. We didn't know it until our birthday. <laughs> now we know. Would, would you like to tell us about some of the humanitarian efforts that you've been involved in and are passionate about? Yeah. It started just a couple of years ago. I was asked to join, no more than a couple now, um, in just 2012, uh, to join a local independent cinema at the board, to join the board. And... They quickly got me roped into, you know, they wanted a trailer or something and to let them know, let people know how they can support this um, nonprofit cinema that's actually been running movies for a hundred years now. Uh, this is the centennial this year, so I'm actually working on some stuff for that at the moment. Uh, it opened in 1916 when movies were silent. It's quite amazing. Really, um, that it's still running. I don't. There may not be another one in the Northeast, but anyway, um, by chance, I had the idea. You know, I, I was in the post office when they had the idea because I, I thought the voice of the guy working there was great, and he should be in a movie. And I was like, well, what movie could he be in? Um, <laughs> and then I, I remembered that they had wanted something. But they were thinking in terms of like famous people who come here. Uh, they just famous people descend on our town in the summer for the Williamstown Theater Festival. 
And they oftentimes are movie actors who want to do theater. So people like to take advantage of, you know, get them on camera to say cool stuff. But I suddenly got interested in the people of our town instead. <laughs> so I ended up making like 12 pieces, little, you know, two minute up to four minute little stories about people in our town who, who do their various things like, you know, run a restaurant or make, one's a surgeon, one's a yoga teacher, all, all different people in our town and let them let be on the big screen. Let them be the stars. Let them let people know. And it, it was pretty popular. People liked seeing each other on the big screen. And then the direct executive director of World Connect saw some of these things, and she wondered if I could, if she could send me to um, the Dominican Republic, Kenya, Haiti, to shoot sort of documentary stuff about their projects that they do all over the world um, in their own unique way. Uh, and they're over a thousand now, World Connect. So I ended up doing that. <laughs> And it was absolutely amazing. I changed my life to not travel so much for a vacation, but to travel to to tell a story, to to see what it's like to live in these kind of last mile communities, places that are just disconnected enough from you know the mainstream to to miss out on a lot of things that make you know life normal nowadays and in a lot of cases it's just very basic things like people don't have electricity or they don't have they don't have clean water or or women who have to sell their bodies you know to get some fish that they can sell you know in the city three hours away so there are all these incredible projects that that are solutions to these problems that come from the people there. So World Connect doesn't come in and say, hey, you've got a problem, here's how to fix it. They provide grants to um, the local leaders or Peace Corps volunteers who are in the area who have the ideas that, the ideas that are solutions, that are grassroots developed, that, that World Connect can fund. Because World Connect's kind of like, you, you could go to World Connect website and you can browse all their projects. And, you know, if you have a little, little extra money to spare, you can see how you would personally most want to spend it. You know, what's a project that really means a lot to you? You know, like you might browse a Kickstarter or something like that. So it makes it easy. You, you know, you just... Look at the projects, pick one, you send money, and you're done. You can move, go along your way. Uh, in the meantime, World Connect is supplying, you know, supporting the projects, um, and then the projects get done. And I got to see, you know, the results of um, of people's lives changing, improving, you know, changing for the better. Absolutely. That sounds like a wonderful initiative and uh, we'll definitely put a link in our show notes as well to World Connect so people can check that out and browse the different projects there. Oh, that would be wonderful. Last year, you launched the Diana Walchak Collection. Uh, so congratulations on this amazing line. And so far, we've seen the introduction of the His Statue t-shirt and the History Police Embroidered Patch. Can you tell us a little bit about where people can find 
uh, those those products and where we can find you online as well? Yeah, I, I've partnered recently with King of Shop, um, which is um, Pez Jacks and Sebastian Me. And yes, we we did a T-shirt and which is like the um, which is based on the statue. So it's just kind of a um, a heather like a light like a very light gray heathered um, t-shirt with a light gray print of the dangerous military patterns that, you know, that are on the statue. Like if you had the shadows of that, that, I don't know, armor, I guess you could say, I, I took the shadows and made that the design. So it's kind of like you're, you get a chance to be the statue <laughs> uh, by wearing it. You could pose in it. You know, I'll, I'll if you get one and you pose in it, I will post <laughs> your image on the Michael Jackson History Statue page, or maybe even on my website if I get that good at um, updating my website, uh, which is dianawithheart.com. And that at dianawithheart.com um, allows you to look at updates on. There's a section called MJ Sculptor. Now, the main sections are film, art, and life. So film will take you to Harmless Little Bunny Productions, which is now my live-action um, focus. And the other one is lifestyle, which I haven't done as much on, but I have a fairly popular page called Smoothies Anonymous, and I once in a while I'll, I'll make a smoothie, and if it's good, they're usually really good, but if it looks really good too, I'll take a picture and I'll post it on there. Um, people love to look at those and comment. And sometimes, I, I oftentimes people send me messages and pictures of their smoothies. Um, it's just my breakfast, basically, but in a cocktail glass. <laughs> they're kind of pretty, and you know, maybe I'll do a book or something like that. But there's a there's a part of my website dedicated to life. I have a lot of ideas with that. I, I do. I'm really into yoga and exercise, and I. I do it on my own. I don't go to classes. So, I mean, I have done, um, but I have a lot of experience now. So I kind of stay home and do my own thing. And I, I have all these ways of doing things that I think would be great to share. And um, it's something, you know, that I, that's out there I hope to do um, as well. Um, did you hear that? It's the dog scratching on the door. <laughs> that's okay. That's cool. Hold on a second. Hey there. Uh, they're coming in, <laughs> as um, you probably wanted to hear them, right? Yeah, that's that's fine. It's not a problem. Hey. My cats are outside the door going What? Crazy, you can so. say hello. Hello. <laughs> they're kind of shy. <laughs> anyway, so. Um, the, as I'm just looking at your website now. I've just found a um, in the art section some beautiful um, sculptures there of creatures. The one that's called Pigsy on the right. That, by any chance, wouldn't have been inspired by the Chinese book Journey to the West, would it have been? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, that is beautiful. Thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> My wife would love that. My wife's Chinese, and she loves that story. Oh, so yeah, it's a really good story. Um, amazing. I, I did a, this series. Um, I don't know if it's finished or not. I think if I continue it, it's going to take on a, a whole new kind of level or something. But 
I started small and just did sort of animal-headed characters, like deities or mythological figures or, or characters and stories. So there's a Hanuman that's a monkey king from the kind of Indian mythologies. And then, um, though there is a monkey king in, in the Journey of the West as well. Yeah. Uh, and I did Pigsy for Journey of the West. That was kind of fun because he's kind of a button like like when they you know they tried to get enlightened and and he just couldn't you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, because he he couldn't resist temptations and then I did oh I did Hecate who's a um, like a a fertility goddess from the Egyptian mythologies yeah and she has yeah. a frog head <laughs> and let's see what else did I do I oh I did. Um, my own version of Caliban from the Tempest, Shakespeare in Tempest. And he's kind of a fish-headed person that's kind of crouched. Some of these I made ca- uh, molds and I made casts. And um, a friend of mine from, when, from high school commissioned me to paint the Hanuman. He wanted a Hanuman painted. And I just loved getting that, um, that challenge, that request. So I said I would do it. And... Um, and I don't know if you did. You see that one? Is that there? It's yeah, that's the, I'm trying to look. For is it. that the blue one on the turntable? Yeah, yeah, that one. It's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that's stunning. Cool. Um, I have, I do have. Oh, Ganesh. Ganesh is the little. Um, he's the smallest one. He's the uh, elephant head from also the Indian uh, mythology, and he's a god of success. So he's really popular. Um, and I'm. He's on the turntable being painted <laughs> in my studio. Uh, he's going to be pink. <laughs> um, with he's going to have the tat, kind of the tattoos as well, and um, some of the gold and the jewelry and all that too, like Hanuman. So that's kind of fun too. I'm also do, working on a a um, a painting project, but you got to put painting in quotes because it's kind of made out of used clothes, which is another one of my huge interests right now uh i went down to the dominican republic to see a this is not world connect but there's a for-profit company that's paying people a living wage to to in a garment factory which is almost unheard of in the world and i I read about um them in overdressed the high cost of cheap fashion by elizabeth klein and um, and got really inspired to to make some art to like use some. Cl- I don't think people realize that the the whole clothing business, the clothing in our world, is like a not sustainable thing. Um, we're headed on a crazy traje- tra- trajectory of having just way too many clothes all over this earth. And I know it sounds kind of scary if you said that way. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just use them, you know, just use them in the process of making some kind of art. So I, I'm working on this painting that's rather challenging. I thought it was going to be easy when I imagined it, but um, it involves stretching the the clothes around a stretcher, but I'm also leaving spaces so it's not like the typical canvas that's all solid. Um, with this, you can see through to the wall. Um, so I'm still in the process of, of that, and I'm also interested in um, developing. I am developing a, a nonfiction 
um, longer form piece um, on that idea, that subject of the living wage and, and the garment industry. And a few, I have a few other projects in development as well. Is there anything that you want to speak about that we have not asked you about? Wow, you really covered a lot. We oh. have, <laughs> and I'm so excited yeah. to look forward to listening to this in the future. Yeah, I have a few notes, but we did cover them. It, it might be something like a project that you'd like to bring attention to or anything like that. Well, uh, we did mention that I would like to do a monument, and that is my goal. That's my big, huge, That's my biggest goal now and of course there are lots of steps to get through and things to figure out but it's really important to me and I know there are so many people in the world who it will affect you know positively and who want it and there's one person who is no longer with us who deserves it more than almost any you know artist you know who's ever lived so I do hope you know, and I think it will happen. <laughs> I just think we can make it happen. I think so. We'll be right there with you. Yeah, when Thank when you, you have updates and when it's uh, when it's progressing, we'll we'll speak to you again, and we'll be talking about it on the show, and always updating our listeners on it for sure. Yeah, any any kind of support that you need, just tell us, and we'll get the word out absolutely to our audience. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. And, you know, it really was a pleasure meeting you guys. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Us as well. We have we have one question more that we always ask. We ask every single guest we ever have this question. Anyone that knew Michael or worked with him, we ask it. And the question is, how do you think Michael should be remembered? Well, wow. <laughs> Maybe I already said it, but uh, I think he should be remembered as, you know, a real person like he I think he was a real human he was a real person with real human emotions and I feel like I often hear people say I, I don't know if I'm stating this really well because I, I didn't see this question earlier but often I hear people say troubled soul and I and somehow I, I don't agree with that because I I met him and I didn't gather that at all from him I don't gather that from his work I think that he was mistreated by many um and that is troubling but i don't think his soul was troubled i think his soul was like you know as good as a soul can be <laughs> and i think that's what people should celebrate um and remember about him and i wish he were here you know so do we 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 have to we have to do what we can do to um celebrate when he was and um, and everything he did for us and the world. I mean, it, it's the more I learn about him, the greater I realize he was and is and, and why people like you keep spreading the word. Beautiful answer. Thank you so much, Diana. You're welcome. <laughs> Sorry, I got a little emotional there. No, um, you're not the only guest that has at that point, I can assure you. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, you know, spend I I didn't spend as much time as a lot of you know a lot of people who have worked with him. I didn't spend as, as much time with him, but I but I got to say that it was um, it it still had like so much impact. I I can't describe, you know, it. I do get emotional even though I didn't work with him for twenty five years like some people did, and it's hard for me to imagine what what 
how it would be for them. <laughs> you know? I think they're very, very fortunate to have done that. In some ways, I think the length of time isn't so much as important as what what people did together with Michael Jackson. And, you know, what you created with him is something that has become so iconic in the fan community and in the world that I think that speaks volumes as to your creative relationship with him. Mm. The history album cover is, I would argue, possibly his most iconic album cover and the statue itself is, is like we said, it's something that's gone down in history, you know, as, you know, something so central to what it is to be a Michael Jackson fan. It represents his, his glory, I guess. How fortunate it was to, you know, to be able to represent that monumentality. Well, awesome. Jamin and I want to extend our thanks again. And on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us on the MJ cast. We've learned so much about you as an artist and uh, filmmaker and pioneer in different aspects and sculptor, not just about the statue, but about you as well. And thank you so much for sharing all that you did with us. I look forward to nerding out over some of the details you spoke about, about things like, you know, Mystique and Spider-Man again and early technological developments with the, the, the plotting pen back in the day. So thank you so much, Diana. Oh, you're so welcome. It has been totally my pleasure. Um, just for our listeners, we in our show notes, we're going to have links to uh, Diana's website, to the Facebook page, YouTube videos that we can find, uh, and to World Connect as well. And yeah, join Diana's Facebook page. It's It's got some great stuff that comes up and yeah, there you can interact with Diana. And for our listeners, our website, of course, is themjcast.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as the MJCast on Tumblr, themjcast.tumblr.com. We're over at YouTube as youtube.com slash plus the MJCast. And we cannot wait for feedback on this show via the social networks or via our email, which is themjcast at icloud.com. So please let us know your thoughts after you've heard this show. And uh, if anything was new to you that you learned from Diana, or if you've got your own personal experiences with the history statue, then why not share those with us as well? We'd really appreciate it. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Diana. And make sure to have a great fortnight ahead and keep Michaeling. Uh, okay. Good night. Cheers. <laughs> Yay. Peace, That's a wrap. <laughs> That's a wrap. <laughs>
the MTV premiere of Michael's first ever full-length televised concert from Bucharest. A Michael Jackson classic, Thriller, and the making of Thriller, a two-hour, never-before-seen Michael Jackson video anthology. A very special Jackson video countdown from Michael's Neverland Valley Ranch. Vintage Jackson 5 cartoons, Michael's mystical musical Moonwalker, plus the making of Michael's latest creation, Scream, his dynamic duet with Janet. Visit the universe that is Michael, all next week at 7.30. Plug into history in the making.